man, we are in a tough spot right now. The future could be better, it could be worse, and it's hard to believe it's going to stay the same. It's like either we we solve our problems and things get better and better, or holy shit, this thing is going to go down in flames. Welcome to the Conservative Curious Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jessica Dang, alongside my friend and co-host, Ani Pai. In this episode, we talk to Michael Gibson, general partner of 1517 Fund, a venture capital firm that invests in the earliest stages of a startup. Previously, Michael ran the Teal Fellowship, where he oversaw the selection of the world's youngest and brightest minds. Listen in as he shares his thoughts on finding the lost Elons, what the Alpha Gamma quality is, why he's thinking of the counter-enlightenment now, and the importance of inspiring future generations. I was talking to Jessica yesterday and I was telling her about my friend Alex Masmeon who raised a personal ICO on himself. Wow. Which, uh, you know, for, I guess, people listening also, it's like doing an IPO on yourself, but in the sense of cryptocurrency and, you know, using Ethereum. And he lives in France, but he really wanted to come to the Bay Area where he was living for a year, but his visa expired. So he raised oh. 20K and... You know, given the recent crypto boom, he's, I was telling her, like, you know, imagine a world where one of my other friends wrote this piece about, you know, the lost Elons, you know, mm-hmm. somewhere in the Congo, just a genius could just be residing. And, you know, we might not be able to make this human capital liquid, but in the sense of cryptocurrency. Culturally, we might not be ready for it because it's almost like an income share agreement where people might see it not as a form of debt, but as, as something akin to selling a part of your soul. But I would love to see ways of talent bootstrapping earlier and getting support. The progenitor to 1517, and I, the reason I chose the name was because I had seen the power of a number in an earlier idea. One of my friends out in the Bay, not anymore. I mean, we're both gone, but uh, our apology, Srinivasan, the, you know, he's quite prominent on Twitter these days. Uh, but back then, in 2012 or 13, when I, whenever I first met him, there were only two people who called me after 10 p.m. at night. Either it was my mom or Balaji. And wow. it was him. He'd call me up. He's like, hey, meet me at the San Bruno Starbucks. And I'd go down there. And then we'd walk around the, the neighborhood drinking a Starbucks, like shooting ideas off each other. And one of the ideas he had at the time that I still think is brilliant, I don't know how you execute on it, but it was it was to find those lost Elon Musks that you were talking about. His name for it was 1729. And that number is special because there's a famous Indian mathematician, Ramanujan, who this guy basically taught himself uh, mathematics out of textbooks in, I believe, you know, the equivalent of a small town in the middle of nowhere. He made it to the frontier in the field on his own. He started proving theorems that others had proved that he didn't know about. And then he had novel insights himself. And, and I guess he wrote maybe five letters to five different universities. And only one professor responded, a mathematician G.H. Hardy at Cambridge, so Ramanujan goes there and, and I don't know what, you know, there's something where after a number of years, his health started failing. Uh, he got sick. He was at home in bed. Uh, I don't know if he ever recovered from this illness. This might have been what killed him. But uh, Hardy, G.H. Hardy came to visit him. And I guess he, he he's in the room and uh, this guy's dying on bed. And, and Hardy, for want of anything to talk about, was like, hey, you know what? The, the cab I took here had the, the most banal, boring number. It was The cab was 1729. And Ramanujan, apparently in like 
a flash of a second says, what are you talking about? That's not a boring number. That is the lowest number that is the sum of two cubes in two different ways. <laughs> what? Uh, so biology was like, okay, how do we find more Ramanujans? Or, you know, phrase it like, how do we find more Elon Musks? And he was going to call it 1729. His idea was, okay, we look at the smartphone penetration in the developing world. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to send out a very simple math problem. We're just going to spam a billion phones. And let's say someone answers that problem correctly over SMS. Then we send them a, di a more difficult problem. And if they get that one right, then we send another one. And it's like after some, call it like 10 rounds, uh, some threshold, then the thought was, okay, now we airlift that person out of wherever they are. Rwanda, India, I don't know, Eastern Europe, and we were going to build a, uh, a school in Singapore to bring these people to. I still think it's an amazing idea. I don't think the, the math problem thing works. I love its scope and scale. But I think there are a lot, if you think about it, what, there's like 7.5 billion people on the planet. If you're one in a billion, that means there are seven other people like you. <laughs> it's like, the, the, there have to be extraordinary people out there and they're not all in Silicon Valley. They're certainly not all in the United States and or the West for that matter. I think, I think there's a lot of talent just starving out there. And I would, I would love to see true equality of opportunity in the world, which would mean finding them and giving them the tools and resources they need. You know, how in LA with the entertainment industry, you have United, you have CAA mm -hmm. that, you know, in SF, those talent agencies are essentially like the VC firm. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Andreessen Horowitz took their playbook mm -hmm. from Michael Ovitz. And I don't know know about CAA and the others and how they really operate, but I, but I think it's supposed to be very much, hey, not only are, you, are we going to negotiate your contracts with the studios or whatnot, but we're also going to support you in your whole career. And so that could be anything from we're going to get you the, uh, the equivalent of Queer Eye to help you with the, your look and your brand and how you market yourself out there. And, and so it's really a holistic approach. And I, and I think that's Andreessen's model, too. That's how they approach investments. Everyone in, in the VC world, they're always thinking about, oh, what is our value-added service? And why do you want to work with us instead of our competitors? And Andreessen Horowitz, the thought is, oh, we have all these services. It's the equivalent of in Hollywood, it might be hair, makeup, wardrobe, marketing, communications. In, in Silicon Valley, it's, hey, we've got a design team. We've got PR team. We've got marketing experts on board. And we're going to help you out. So I think that's interesting that they ripped the playbook from Ovitz. And Andreessen, Mark Andreessen is an investor in 1517, and I was fortunate enough to have breakfast with him. And our conversation was about what we're talking about here, which I think is kind of interesting. It shows he thinks a lot about it. One of the one of the funnier things about the meeting was Danielle and I sit down and Andreessen takes out these uh, dossiers or uh, profiles. Like, And on the cover is a picture of Danielle. And then on the other one is a cover um, is a picture of me. And we're Danielle and I. What? And he opens it up and then he sees, oh, with Danielle, I see you've studied psychometrics, the study of personality. And, 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 and so we start talking about that. And that's Daniel's background, too, you know, and it feeds into what we do. So I think that's interesting that he, he himself has his own system for uh, I think it's also to help keep track of meetings and, and who he's talking to. But, but it's also, I think, his way of evaluating things. And in that meeting, he told us what he saw as the future of venture capital was going to be something like Andreessen Horowitz, these really big funds that have a lot of money under management. They can afford to have the coaches and the experts help you out. It's, it's like the typical business model in, in VC is, is two and 20. Maybe you've heard that 
term on the TV show Billions, what that means is you get 2% on the total amount you have under management to run your company. If you have a billion-dollar fund, okay, 2% on that is quite a bit, and you can hire all, the, all those people to help you out. But if you're like a, a $200 million fund, you, you can't compete with the Andreessen's at a billion because at 2% on $200 million, you get a pretty good staff, but it's not, you're not going to have experts in all these different industries, you know, SaaS, B2B, uh, material science, whatever. Uh, so his vision of the future of venture capital was that the middle-type funds were going to get hollowed out. Andreessen, with all these, you know, Ovid-style value-added services are going to be the big dogs. And then he said, what's left will be the Soul Cycles and Gucci's. He's like, oh, yeah, we're, we're Walmart. We're uh, Amazon wholesale. You need a fan. You come to us. And then on the other hand, you're going to have Gucci's and, and Soul Cycle. And I said, who's Gucci? And he says, you are. <laughs> I was like, all right. I like that. I'll be Gucci. Yeah. And I think what he meant was, what he was saying is that you're going to see these really niche boutique funds that have honed some expertise in whatever domain they're working in. And if I had to say, Danielle and I, what differentiates us is, is that we are in the people business and we work with a specific type of person. We're looking for outsiders to institutions, people who haven't gone to school, dropped out, or maybe they got kicked out. I don't know what, but we're looking for a certain profile and, and it is related. It's all about the characteristics we've been talking about. But one thing that Peter Thiel is exceptional about, and this comes from you know, his one of his mentors, intellectual mentors, is uh, the literary theorist René Girard. And Girard had, it's a whole topic and can be quite confusing and, and difficult, but, but he had theories about social dynamics, in particular, the madness of crowds and how the crowd chooses scapegoats. Who, who does the crowd choose to scapegoat? And Girard developed a theory that if you look through all the mythologies of the world, uh, the Hall of Heroes, oftentimes you see that the person they choose to scapegoat uh, sometimes is is the hero of, of some story. And, and, and sometimes that hero is the person who resisted the mob. Sometimes it's someone who was killed and then and then uh, resurrected. But the the personality traits of that scapegoat tend to combine the traits of an outsider to the society, but also the traits of an insider. If they're too inside, that means they're already part of the mob and they're not a good choice. If they're too foreign, well, then there's no way that person could ever have uh, hurt the society and caused the, the panic that we're in. And it's always this borderline person in the middle that gets the becomes the target of the crowd. And, and I want to say that this is something that Peter looks for in talent is he's always looking for someone who is the unity of some kind of opposites, where it's like you are an extreme outsider and somehow you're an extreme insider. The only analogy I have is at Oxford, there used to be a, a grade that they would give on, on papers that I think is useful. And, and their system is, was sort of like ours. Instead of A's, B's, C's, they, it was alpha, beta, gamma, and alpha was the top. And Oxford had this grade that was the alpha, gamma. It meant that there were astonishing, brilliant things in your essay, and also idiotic and stupid things. But the problem was that we couldn't tell the difference of what was what. <laughs> so you got, an, you got an alpha gamma. And I think that's what Peter uh, looks for in a lot of the people that he hires is some alpha gamma at attribute where it's like you are the unity of opposites in some fashion, and, and that is, creates this dynamism. It's hard to explain, but I think that's something he's picked up on. 
question. When you're traveling across the country and really the globe, I'm just wondering if you find that these geniuses are lone geniuses or if they're amongst peers who are on the same level. And uh, Ani just told me about this term called senius yesterday. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and it's Brian Eno, who is this conceptual music producer and theorist who said that it's a group of peers that are inspired by each other and their environment. And so I was just curious if that's what you're seeing when you're traveling across the globe looking for talent. Are they lone geniuses or are they in communities? How can we create that going forward in the 21st century? That's a great topic. And I think understudied. If you look at the historical record, one of the things that stands out is the number of creative clusters that are born, they flower and bloom, and then they die out. So I think one understudied subject would be, why do these things happen? What is the dynamic of that life cycle? Like, why do things grow and then fade out? I think it's tied to what you're saying where, I mean, God, you can think of, it's like uh, Elizabethan London. If we're thinking about Shakespeare, he, he was the best playwright, but he was competing against other playwrights. It's one of the funnier things is, uh, I mean, I think about it in relation to 1517 is because Shakespeare was assuming you agree with me that, you know, Stratford of Avon is, is the guy who wrote all the plays, but he had no university degree and all his competitors did. They were known as the, the, the wits of Cambridge and so on. And they would all make fun of Shakespeare for, for not having a, a college degree. <laughs> but it was clear that he was part of the scene where they'd go to the, the mermaid, the tavern, and they'd argue about whose writing was better and, you know, who had the next pitch that was going to be the, the, the big hit. You think of Athens, Florence, all of them are scenes where it combines a lot of the, the tacit knowledge, the explicit knowledge, uh, you have the resources of people like the Medicis and, and Florence to, to back these people. So I think we have some sense of what the conditions are, but we have no idea how to replicate these things or why they pop up like they do. We know some things that kill them. I mean, it could be onerous regulations. It could be a hostile government. It could be a world event. So we don't know a lot about that. And, and I think Silicon Valley for, for a time fit that mold. I think that one of the challenges is, is fighting against that life cycle I, talk, I, I talked about. It's like the baseline is that all these things flower and then disappear. So one of the under, I think Silicon Valley is not really paying attention to this <laughs> or San Francisco. They just assume the golden goose is going to keep laying golden eggs without thinking about may, maybe getting a better handle on what the conditions are for creating a genius. What I will say though, is if you do look at the historical record, it's a combination of the two. So you can't just be a lone genius in the field. I mean, maybe you could be like Ramanujan, but even if he just scribbles away in a notebook, it's, uh, he's not going to be as effective as he might be if he has some people he can reach out to. Uh, so take Isaac Newton, for example. He was uh, one of the extreme introverts I mentioned before. He hated being around other people. He did not very much like their company. I think he was a bit of a jerk, <laughs> in fact. And, and he did a lot of his best work alone. So one of the famous stories is that during the, the bubonic plague, he did retire to <laughs> retreat to his childhood home. And, uh, you know, there's some evidence that he, he did go back to Cambridge for some things here and there. But by and large, the guy in his own home discovered calculus and uh, the laws of motion governing bodies and, and gravitation. So pretty astonishing discoveries. They were all made in seclusion. But he was tied into a network of other 
great minds and and he wrote them letters and in a sense he would get feedback so i I think this tends to replicate in other instances where and and newton again and maybe it fits that peter Thiel dimension of of the opposites it's like it's like you're introverted to the point where you have enough time to think for yourself or maybe you have the independence of spirit to think for yourself but you're not such a crank that you're you have no one to bounce and check the ideas off of and and maybe the hard part is is that those other people have to be aces as well. So it's not like Newton was just writing to anyone on the continent. He was writing to Robert Boyle or or other people uh, of, of very high stature. That feedback is is very 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 important. But on the other hand, so is the solitude in order to to search for his ideas. So I think I think you need to you need both. You can't just be a lone genius. But on the other hand, you can't be so extroverted that you just meld and become one of the Borg and, and, and totally drink the Kool-Aid and, and disappear and lose all individuality. We were just talking, Ani and I, to Resonant Pyre from Twitter. He's a freshman at the University of Chicago, brilliant mind, moved back to LA. And I'm just like, whoa, I wonder if he has that community and whether these seniuses exist in real life. Yeah. Because right now it seems to be existing on Twitter. I think Twitter is the mm. most fertile ground. Tyler Cohen actually talked about this where I think my favorite article by him was where he's like, when people were applying for master's programs at George Mason, he would actually offer them a PhD instead. And he would just ask them, like, remember this and I hope you pay it forward in the future. Wow. And he was like, my best PhD students were people who like just applied for the master's and nobody had ever told them they could do better. And so he's right. like, you know, I want to be the change. And I think, yeah, I definitely want to do that for people, right? If we can Yeah, do- personally, I, I think this ties it. Like if a CIA shrink analyzed me, one of the vulnerabilities, certainly in my younger years, was that I was never, I, I had ambitions, but I was almost too scared to assert them. It's like I, I, when I was in undergrad and I was in love with philosophy and literature, it was like, oh, yeah, maybe I can become a professor critic who writes about these other great people who wrote things. It's like never would I say it's like I, I never thought to myself, oh, yeah, you know, you could be a poet. It's like, that, like, whoa, I could be Shakespeare, right? We might have the same psychological profile in that way, Probably. because I, I, too, also felt in my younger years I had ambitions. Maybe I didn't have the community around me to... Mm to put that belief in myself. And so now I find myself putting belief in other people. And uh, I've had people ask me like, what drives you to do conservative curious? Mm. I'm like, I feel like I just, I just want to like cheer you on. It's just like the, whatever it is to like, get you to think and continue with that. Yeah. Maybe this is how role models can be really important. Someone like Elon Musk just sets in, not that everyone's going to create rocket ship companies, but just like the the amount that this guy has done in his life is impressive. A lot of people just don't have big enough ambitions. And and the more secluded you are, I find the smaller your ambitions, oddly enough, or maybe that's not odd, but it's almost, it's almost like by being exposed to other people, you might be able to, to have, a grander view of things. I mean, maybe there's competition too, as you get into a senius and suddenly it's like, oh yeah, you're Shakespeare and you're competing with Kit Marlowe and Ben Johnson. Well, yeah, you better be pretty good. Oh, one, I, one of my, yeah, I, I, I don't know, maybe I have a curiosity about Shakespeare, but I even noticed I was in the, there's a famous Folger Shakespeare library in, uh, I think that's what it's called. No, it's in Washington, D.C., right near the Library of Congress. And I went on a tour and the woman, the first stop was this painting of of London in in 1608 or or whatever. And she she asked me, she says, "Okay, do you see the globe? And the globe is south of the Thames. And I'm like, oh, yeah, the globe. And she says, do you see this? 
right next to it. I was like, no, what's that? And she says, oh, it's a bear baiting pit. I was like, bear baiting? She says, yeah, this was an entertainment of the era. They would uh, catch bears, tie them to a large pole, chain them to a pole, and then they would have dogs enter the arena and attack the bear. And people would bet on how many dogs the, the, the bear could kill before it died. And, and, it, and not only is that just violent and <laughs> just barbaric, but then it hit me is like, okay, this is what Shakespeare was competing with. Right next door, you can watch a bear kill dogs, but your poetry better be so damn good that <laughs> the guy who would go to the bear baiting pit is going to choose your play instead. I love that. When you're in that community of peers, you're right, there is a competitive edge. Not really that you want to imitate them, mm. but it's kind of like you get the reflection where you're like, oh, that's how it could be done. I think so. I, th I think unspoken within any profession is a, a hierarchy, a pyramid of some kind where everyone knows who's at the top and everyone else is trying to trying to get there. It's unspoken. You can't directly address it. But for some reason, everyone is competing along these dimensions. And so I, I, a great book on this is, is The Right Stuff. Maybe in an indirect way or in a direct way if you read it, but you wouldn't know that if you've only seen the movie or if you're thinking, hey, it's about the space race. It's actually about talent scouting and development because the whole book is about, hey, who are these people who are willing to risk their hides first as test pilots and then as astronauts? And why would they do this? And, and then moreover, how were they judged? And, and Wolf's book takes you through each step in the process of, of elimination. But what's more is, is you start to see this What's internalized as the, as the ethos of the profession is something that's unspoken and very competitive. It's like there's the best pilot in the world, Chuck Yeager, and everyone else is going to try to imitate that person to, to try to be like that. And so I find in the, in the world of investing, for instance, you can think is like or, or startups. I think a lot of the, the rhetoric about changing the world is all of this is Steve Jobs. That guy had the right stuff. He was at the top of the pyramid and everyone wants to be like him. And so they, they imitate him to some degree. And maybe in the world of investing, you got Paul Graham, Peter Thiel. Now we have all these philosopher VCs out there. You know, you're super prolific online. And we had just a few questions about like, just if you could expand on some of your tweets. So one of them that Jess and I actually spent quite a bit of time talking about was when you said, you know, uh, counter enlightenment, but pro tech, pro progress is a very dynamic quadrant. So we are kind of wondering how you interpreted that. At bottom, what I was trying to say is, I'd say the dominant view of the world is very materialist. And by that, I mean, people think there are atoms and the laws of physics, and that's it. There's no sort of transcendent reality beyond it. There's no deeper reality. Uh, the mysteries that we currently don't understand, everything from consciousness to the origins of the universe, that, that all these things will be explained one day in scientific terms. By and large, people are atheists. They're rationalists. They're obsessed with the beliefs they have, how they come to have these beliefs, what evidence supports them, you know, that style, mode of thinking. And perhaps it's exemplified in, in Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, is a good example where uh, he, he, he really champions the idea of reason. And I think that is the core attribute of the Enlightenment. Now, now, there's a lot in favor of reason, of course. I'm not saying we should be irrational, nor that we should be unreasonable. But what I think is missing in, in, in that view is it is an element of faith. I think at root, even if you're a mathematician working on a theorem, you have to have faith that you have, have the ability to solve it. Otherwise, what's the point? You wouldn't make the leap unless you had that faith. And so, uh, you know, something that I think is, is underrated in terms of advancing technology and science 
is the degree to which things like faith have a role. And, and that's why I think the counter-enlightenment would be interesting. And then uh, and you could look at an essay. Peter Thiel has an essay in the religious journal called First Things, published in 2015. And, and so he's drawing on elements of, of the Bible and, and Goethe's Faust to talk about why progress is important in religious terms. And maybe what's underlying that, especially in, in Faust, the second part of the play yeah. ends with Faust trying to help a group of people fill in a dike before a flood. <laughs> and, uh, and suddenly he, this is the most ecstatic moment, religious experience in his life. And I think, I think that's part of the Protestant work ethic spirit, that somehow our works in this world could take on a religious dimension. And, and I think that's you know something Peter was was picking up. You know that's something that he was touching on in that essay. Perhaps I don't want to speak for him. So so the counter enlightenment would be something like reason plus faith, not you know not just reason versus emotion and emotions bad. <laughs> I feel like you have like a glimpse of the future in some way, just because you've met so many young and talented people and you get to see so many ideas for the future. I'm just wondering like what your sense of the future is like do we have something to look forward to that's a tough question there's a famous line by william gibson the sci-fi writer and no relation to me that the the future is here it's just not evenly distributed and and I, i actually see that in my work meaning there are these little pockets of places like a senius or an individual where you meet them and it's clear they're working at the frontier of something and one experience for me is uh, meeting Vitalik Buterin in 2012. At that time, he was just this wiry Russian computer engineer. Uh, he had, he actually applied to the Teal Fellowship originally with a ed tech idea. Uh, and wow. We've always been bearish on ed tech, but we knew he he was certainly brilliant. So we wanted to keep in touch with him. And on his own, he started editing the Bitcoin magazine. He was developing these ideas of using the blockchain for other use cases besides currency. And, and that, that was one of these times where it was like, okay, this, ki- this guy is living in the future. We're all in the past. And <laughs> I have to learn more about what he's doing. So, so I do see little pockets like that. I, it's hard sometimes to know, though, based on people and seeing some kind of technology like that advance to then form a, a clear picture of the larger macro trends. Man, we are in a tough spot right now. The future could be better, it could be worse, and it's hard to believe it's going to stay the same. It's like either we we solve our problems and things get better and better or holy shit, this thing is going to go down in flames. And uh, right now these are dark times, so it's 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 hard to say. I I think the one thing in common though is you just can't nothing is inevitable. Yeah, you know, I believe in agency and maybe seniuses matter, but those things are composed of individuals and so what we all do is in the end going to matter to some extent. And so we should try to build the future that we want to see. I hope I'm doing our part by funding companies and founders and helping them get started by building things that'll make, you know, truly make the world a better place. Uh, not just in the glib sense that Silicon Valley normally talks about, but what would that future look like? I mean, I, I don't know in the long run, it's like, I'm, I'm one of these zany, crazy people who think we should uh, explore the, the solar system and then, maybe even one day escape to other places in the galaxy. And if you take the broader perspective of human history uh, on the positive story, we're just at the very beginning of things. Civilization is only 
10,000 years old, the Industrial Revolution, only 200. Some people have only been thinking about some of these problems for less than 100 years, 50 years, maybe even 20. And, and so from that perspective, it's like we're at the beginning of some long, long story. And, and the future could be quite bright and exciting. And I think we have an obligation to those future generations to do the best we can to help them out. Yeah, you know, I, I actually met Bron Shedd, who you discovered oh, yeah. at 15 something and um, Keaton Dunsford, who you've met probably around the same age. And they've both said of you that you've changed their life. Really? You know, <laughs> well, first of all, they think you're a G, uh, which I think an OG. Oh, Michael, like, Michael's one of the cool guys. You're doing it. You know, like you're the, the wind beneath their wings. You're changing lives and just, I guess, encouragement and belief in someone can go a long way. Hmm. If I think of like a good teacher in the past, it wasn't someone who explained things well. For me, it was always the person who recognized within me some potential I secretly, implicitly thought I had, but wasn't ready quite to say I had it. It's like they, 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 they believed in me before I did and, and somehow convinced me of it. You know, speaking of Keaton, I told him that we were going to talk to you. He was really excited about that. <laughs> okay. What do you know about Michael? What should we ask him about? You should ask him to talk about the blues and the Wild West and T.S. Eliot and the manifest destiny of post-rights politics. That's great. I love Keaton. He's awesome. He's wild. He's He's got quite a mind. Uh, okay, I'll touch on T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot, I fell in love with. Uh, his poetry just resonated with me deeply, and I was never even quite sure what it meant, and I still don't. <laughs> and yet, it managed to stick in my mind and would resurface at times, and but his his poetry speaks to me in odd ways uh, that are hard to explain. One of the things I really love is his poem, The Wasteland. This was written in the aftermath of uh, the First World War and, and the Spanish flu. And it is a very, uh, in, a, in a way, a dark poem because The Wasteland refers to the Arthurian legend where the, the kingdom had fallen into disrepair. The, the lands had been, uh, you know, some kind of parasite had destroyed the crops was a period of, of decline, and the point of searching for the Holy Grail was to revive the vitality of, of, of the nation, uh, of the kingdom. And, and so the knights are out to, to find an answer to, to the dark times. And Eliot's poem, it's, it's a collection of fragments and memories, some personal, some just random shards of scholarship and other people's work. And, and the challenge of the poem is to take all these different pieces and see how they fit together to form a meaningful whole. And the genius of the poem, I think, is that it always resists that synthesis. You're always like pushing it and you're almost there and yet you never make the full connection. And somehow I think the search for meaning and, and maybe the, the mythology of, of returning the land to vital, a, a vital, fecund agriculture and so on, uh, that there's something to be said for, for taking all these different pieces in our lives, our memories, the things we work on, and, and forming them into some new whole. That's my broad thematic statement on, on, on the wasteland. I mean, I feel like that's so timely, given what's happening in our country and the world right now. Yeah, um, we're certainly in, uh, in a, a state of fragmentation. I can't think of a better way to sum up 2020 than how Michael described the wasteland. But as he said, let's build the future we want to see. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you like this episode. 
You can check out 1517's investment portfolio at 1517fund.com. For exclusive content from Conservative Curious and to get on our list for private events, please subscribe at conservativecurious.com. Until next time, stay curious. Yeah, and it was actually, we met for coffee one time at Limeray, and you're like, yeah, you should totally do a podcast. And now look, oh, did, here we did, are. Didn't I? For one thing, I think you have a very good radio voice. And then the other thing is that I think you're a connector and you know lots of people. So it dawned on me, it was, I, I thought, wow, I think you'd be really great. <laughs>